Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 62 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is someone who has done tons of great work and feels like she'll always be associated with Saturday Night Live, Nora Dunn. Dunn was in the 1985 SNL cast that marked the return of executive producer Lorne Michaels. She and Jan Hooks were the lounge singing Sweeney sisters. She played talk show host Pat Stevens, and she wrote. She was on the show until toward the end of the 1989-90 season. She refused to perform in an episode being hosted by comedian Andrew Dice Clay. Her argument was that by letting Clay host, the show was normalizing an offensive figure who reveled in the abuse of women. Ah, but that was a long time ago, wasn't it? She went on to take dramatic as well as comedic roles in film and TV. She had a memorable turn in Three Kings and saw director David O. Russell and George Clooney literally butt heads. Music is high and the spirits are soaring as these young... Did I just say soaring? How did it sound? They say you exercise the ghost of Vietnam with a clear moral imperative. We liberated Kuwait. She also shown in Bullworth, Pineapple Express, and more recently, The Oath. Christopher, we said, we're not talking politics. I'm not going to ruin Thanksgiving, I promise. Rest assured. Her television work has included recurring roles on Sisters, The Nanny, Chicago Med, and Home Economics. I raised three beautiful, self-sufficient children who don't need me and won't miss me when I die. She also did voice work on The Boss Baby, appeared in a series of funny Clorox commercials, and has thoughts about celebrities doing voiceovers and ads. Several years ago, I saw her star in an excellent one-woman show, Mythical Proportions, which she wrote. She and I spoke shortly after she'd sold her house in Los Angeles so she could be in the Chicago area full-time. She grew up in Chicago in a family where her father invented something cool involving books, and she had jobs from a young age. She was surprised when she moved to L.A. and found that not all actors worked as hard as she did to learn their lines. Her younger brother, Kevin Dunn, also went into the business, becoming best known for playing the chief of staff on Veep. How did growing up in Chicago prepare her for the acting world? Who were her favorite Saturday Night Live hosts, and why was one of them Mary Tyler Moore? What was the cue card disaster when Charlton Heston hosted? How did Christopher Walken react when Dunn wrote a sketch for him to portray the rainbow head guy from sporting events? When Bill Murray hosted, what was his horrifying suggestion regarding the Sweeney sisters? What was it like being a woman writing for the show then? Would the Andrew Dice Clay controversy have played out differently in the Twitter age? How did she get musical guest Sinead O'Connor to join her in her boycott? And how did Lorne Michaels punish Dunn many years later at the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary event? Also, which legendary film director jammed a wooden snake down the front of her blouse when she was vying for a movie role? We cover that and a lot more, including the creative work she is currently doing. As she has demonstrated in her writing and performances, Nora Dunn is a tremendous storyteller who knows how to put things in perspective. Please enjoy this enlightening and very funny Carol Pop conversation with Nora Dunn. You've been going back and forth between L.A. and Chicago, but now you're just Chicago, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll still go back there, but I, you know, I sold my house, so I've disconnected. Why did you want to disconnect? Well, I mean, it was just time. You know, I had the house out there. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot to think about. It's stressful not to be in your house out there. So, um, you know, I got that house because I got a commercial contract like six years ago or something. And um, it was great. 
it's great to say, oh, I have a house in California, but the reality is a little different. So I sold it. Where in, where in LA was it? It was in Burbank, which is right by Warner Brothers Studios. It's the, it's, it's LA, but it's not, it's actually its own town. It has its right. own. I'm, I've always been here and it's nice just to be a Chicago and now. What was the uh, commercial contract? Clorox. I mean, you've been doing a lot of series work too. So I imagine that's also been keeping you in LA. Well, yeah, that's that's what I do essentially. I mean, the the Clorox thing was interesting because it happened. I didn't have a place in LA. I just had to, I just had a place here, and I was driving out there with a friend of mine. We were in two separate cars, and I was going out with my. Um, I think I just had my one dog at that time, and I was not going. Usually, when I go to LA, I'm going to work. But on this one, I was like going out there because, well, I've got to focus on this. I have to, uh, I have to get work. My manager said, you have to come out, have meetings and do these kinds of things. So I was doing that. And on my way there, my friend and I, we were, we went down the foothills of the Rockies and we got in a terrible, um, we got in a terrible snowstorm. I mean, it was a blizzard, mm. but put us on the 25 and no one could get off. And it was really one of the my my worst experiences on my many uh, you know driving trips to L.A. But um, I always stayed at the same hotel when I took those trips in Santa Fe. So I called the guy to say we're not going to be there at seven o'clock. We're not might not be there till midnight, but we're going to need four margaritas. Um, <laughs> and he did. I said either leave the ingredients or just the margaritas. It took us almost seven hours to get there, but the wow. margaritas were waiting. And uh, that made it all okay. But on that trip, my manager called to tell me that Clorox was offering me this deal. And it was amazing. How was that presented to you? Like, what did they say? Like, all right, this is what you're going to do with Clorox. No, first of all, I I never did any commercials. And my manager, I've I've been with him for 20 years. And he's like, Nora, I'm going to tell you this. And I don't want you to balk at it yet. It's very creative. It's a great job. It's a lot of money. And at the time I wasn't working and I go, well, now that that's good. That sounds good to me. What is it? And he goes, well, I can't tell you. I've got to get, I've got to get Joel on the phone, my agent and the manager. I said, Stephen, what is it? I'm, I'm, I'm on my way now to Flagstaff. He goes, it's a life changer. That's what it is. That's all I can tell you. It's a, it's a life changer. It's a life changer. <laughs> and so, uh, God, I had to wait. And I said, you know, if you were with me and I had a baseball bat, I'd be hitting you with it. But, um, it turned out to be, you know, I just, I had to make six spots and it really, really was fun. Of course I said, yes, it was, it was a lot of money. The commercials pay a lot more money than, than series do in a short amount of time, you know, but, and, 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 you know, I looked up Clorox and I go, well, it is, once you have Clorox, it is safe. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's eating Clorox pods, presumably. No. No. So, but it really worked out. And that's how I got the house. I, I had to buy, I bought the house pretty quickly because though they pay you in a lump sum and then they pay you for the next three years too. So that was a highlight. And I still have my toilet bowl cleaner next to my own toilet here <laughs> with a memory. Were you against it or was it just something that hadn't come up? Just money. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, my manager was very reluctant, like Nora, but you know, I, I, the experience was good when I did these Clorox things because some of them were through the internet and they had some really good actors that played with me. And some of them were from the groundlings and we got to improvise and those were on the internet and those were really funny. And it was a lot of fun. It was weird because 
the company was there at the shoot and then you'd come out with your your costume and, and the guy who was doing the costume goes if you like it then they'll like it you know if you say you like it they'll like it there was that and then we had to go we had you know we get up really early we would go to a supermarket and do it in there but we um we did one that I really love that was on the internet and some of them they wouldn't take because they were, they, they weren't really booble, but we were in a toilet and. You know, <laughs> it always starts off well when you start with, we were in a toilet. And she goes, you were standing, well, it was for the toilet bowl cleaner. Cause there were other ones, there was the countertop and all the other ones. But I said to this actress who was from the groundlings, I go, look in that toilet. What do you see? And she goes, it looks like my ex-husband. <laughs> so I said, get out of here, you dirty, filthy little man. And we've put the Clorox in and flushed him down. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't use that one? It was on the internet. Oh, okay. Because oh, those could be different. The ones that were on television were, you know, my character in a supermarket, my character in a kitchen. But they were still funny, actually. And we did get to improvise. And, and then I bought a house. So I, I didn't have any regrets because I thought, you know, I've had you know, really great years in my career. I've had really lean years. You know, there was a time for like three years. I was the go-to person for this supporting role, blah, blah, blah. And then that ends because, you know, in the room, they're going, ah, we've seen so much of her. No, we, eh, no, she did this. We can't see blah, blah, blah. They, they don't want to see you anymore for a couple of years. So I don't really have a lot of guilt. I guess I was just from old school. I feel like a lot of big stars started doing commercials when it used to be, you know, like maybe a famous actor, but now they're in their 70s and they're going to make commercials. And that's totally legit for me. But to see people that already are making millions of dollars, but they're going to do commercials, I just feel like that's just overkill. You know, it's also like how famous people started taking the parts in uh, the voiceover parts and in, in animated features, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And they always no. say, oh, it's just so much fun. Yeah. But that's a job to other people, to people who only do that. That is their their livelihood. And these people who do voiceovers, I did a cartoon series called Hysteria, and um, it was a, a funny take on history for kids. And Lorraine Newman was doing it myself. And then all the voiceover artists who that's what they do. And they're just amazing. They can do any voice. They're unusual people because when you're sitting at a table with them, all they do is compete with voices. <laughs> continue. Like the director would come in and go, okay, I need a Carson. They'd all start blabbing out their Johnny Carson. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Landecker from Chicago, you know, another working Chicago actor. I mean, the thing that kept her going for years was doing these voiceovers on these, yeah. these ads, you know, that was it. I mean, I don't like going to an animated, you know, and go, oh, that's Mel Gibson. That's his voice. I don't want to know that. I, I don't know that for more than one reason. <laughs> you go look at your IMDb page and there is a, a steady stream of work and you know they're they're the people who everyone sort of fixates on and then there's just like this population of like working actors who do all this great work over time and and like what do you think is the least or, or most misunderstood thing about being a working actor i think that when you start out especially starting out on a series you just think you're going to do series for the rest of your life you know and that doesn't always happen. You you can do a pilot that doesn't get picked up, that you, you're not always going to have an influx of money. You have to be kind of, not necessarily more frugal than anybody else, but I've known people who get like a big movie 
and there's a lot of talk about them. Then they buy a house that they'd buy the house they think they should have as a movie star. Right. And then they don't get another big movie and they can't have furniture. And I was just never that person. I was the person who always had. I remember once I was selling a house that I was living in in LA and the agent goes, oh, I can't wait to tell people that Nora Dunn lives in a two plus one. It's like, I, I don't need to see you again. Wow. Yeah. I had a I had a house for myself. It was two bedrooms, one bathroom. It was a bungalow. I mean, I never felt like if I had a big influx of money, even when I got the Clorox commercial, I bought a house that had two bedrooms and one bathroom and a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, basically a cottage, a really, really sweet little cottage. And I don't know, I guess that's just for, for my, where I come from, you know, the whole idea that you're going to hit it big and li live off that money forever just uh, never made sense to me because I saw people who thought that and it didn't happen. My dad invented hardcovers for paperback books and they made them. He had a lot of ideas and this one came to fruition and they were advertised on the Jack Parr show. And we thought we were going to be living in a big mansion and not in the apartment. But as it turned out, people didn't want to put hardcovers on their paperbacks. So wait, he invented hardcovers to put on already existing yeah. paperback books. Like, yeah. the, like obviously the concept of the hardcover book was around before your father, but he would figured out a way to make them. Like he paperback books. Right. Different sturdier. Yes. And these were like, look like leather and you could they were the size of their various books and you'd buy a packet of them and you peel off the back and they stick on your paperback. And then there's a, there was a thin piece that went in the center that you could see through so that you could see the name of them. All of our paperbacks had them at home. Do you have <laughs> books like that now? I, I wish that someone in the family still had one of our hardcover paperbacks. Wow. They, and, but they were advertised on the Jack Parr show. And so it was a big deal, but you could get them at Follett's bookstore. You know, it was a pretty good idea, but it really didn't make a hardcover book. People with paperbacks were just tossing them away. That's why you had a paperback. Right. But uh, I remember finding a letter that my mother had written to her friend or something. And it said, I don't know what we're going to do with all this money. We're going to be buying a house. And my dad, you know, he would have other ideas at the at the kitchen table or, you know, dinner table. He'd say, what is the one thing about a hot dog that bothers you? <laughs> well, he came up with the idea of Dunn's buns and it's a hot dog, but it had a little slit in it and you'd put the hot dog. <laughs> so the hot dog itself would not fall off the bun. But then, oh, like it had like a ridge sort of that you would like attach the hot dog to? Yeah, not at the side, but at the top, you would slide your, your hot dog in there. Oh, okay. And like a little it, sleeping bag for a hot dog. But the thing is, then we go, Dad, but how do you get the mustard, the relish, the pickles, the onion <laughs> in there? So then he started, he goes, I'm going to work on that. I'm going to think about that. So that so one that, was not on the Jack Parr show. That never came out that, but he had a lot of ideas like that. And we don't, we don't, we'd always laugh at my dad. I mean, this is sort of a cliche about Chicago, but maybe one of those that's true. Like you grew up here in Chicago and it imbued you with a certain work ethic. Uh, at least that's the reputation for people and, you know, actors 
you know, people in the creative businesses from Chicago and that you go out to LA and they're like, oh, they're the ones who actually work. Is that true? We lived in a reality and you see people who work really, really hard. I mean, I had a friend whose father was a garbage man. He called himself a sanitation technician, <laughs> but he was so happy after he graduated high school, he got a job on a, on a garbage truck. It paid well. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I just remember that. And I, at the time, I was like, you're not a sanitation. I was saying you're not a sanitation technician. But he was joking, of course. But that, you know, there was all those city jobs paid. And, uh, you know, I started babysitting when I was probably 12. And then I went on when I could. As soon as I was 16, I started selling magazines. And, you know, when I got my applied for my Social Security check, I go, oh, my God, I was paying Social Security when I was 16 years old. Everybody got a job in those days. It was easier for us, I think. But you had to get money so that you could buy your own records and stuff. Right. So I always I've just always worked. Then when I went out to L.A. and I, I mean, I was on a, 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 a series and I go, these people, the ones who are the leads and they're making 50,000 an episode, they don't know their lines. What's going on here? One of the actresses once stuck her lines in post-its on me and she was reading them off me. She put the post-its on you? Yeah. And I Did she like, get your consent to do that? Yeah, she asked me and I go, <laughs> if you must, <laughs> you know, I felt like. You guys, did you ever do theater? Have you ever gone up on stage without a script? It's you get when you start doing TV, it's like, oh, you can, you know, you're going to get another take, another take. They'll piece it all together for you. But if you don't come from there and actually, you know, according to the hierarchy, you know, you're, you know, it depends on what project you're on. Are you going to get five takes or are you going to get two takes? Or if you, if you come on a show and you're a, you're a, a guest star, just know all of your lines. And I worked with Gene Hackman a couple times. He was a great actor, hilarious guy. Uh, but I was warned in advance, if he sees those sides, sides are the little teeny script you have. People pull them right. out of their pockets and look at them. He, he's not even going to talk to you. He comes fully prepared, knows all of his lines, knows what he's doing. That does not surprise me. And so... You know, I just never, ever bought my sides anywhere until I, you know, start doing series and, you know, get up and, yeah, what are my lines today? But, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I was kind of shocked that there were so many actors who seemed unprepared, you know, but I guess they get into a thing where they're working every day, so, you know, the five days a week, da, 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 and they don't want to do that. I mean, the last time, the last series of, yeah, I mean, I still am in a series, Home Act. But I got to get up at four o'clock because I like to have an hour in the morning. If you have to be at work at 530, you know, that I'm glad I'm not a regular on the show because I can't do that reg on a regular basis. Mm. When you were on Saturday Night Live, did you know all your lines when the show started or were you reading yeah. off of the cue cards? You had to rely on cue cards because they, they changed things at the last minute. Mostly I knew my stuff, especially if I wrote it. But they were supposed to be a crutch for you, not something that you stared at. I mean, once Charlton Heston was doing the show and uh, he was he was really a great guy, but he, he didn't want to admit that he needed glasses and he did need glasses. He wore glasses, but he didn't wear them around us. Right. So when it came to the cue card thing, he had to have like like only like three words on his cue card. And those, those 
Pucard masters. They were um, brilliant. But I was doing a scene with, uh, it was a um, Egyptian scene with John Lovitz. Well, we were supposed to know our lines, but we didn't know our lines. Well, while they were doing the cue cards, the words were so big that there were so many that one of the guys lost control of his cue cards. <laughs> we're all over the floor. And John and I were just, everyone had a color. Mine was blue. So you could look for your color and see your line. So John and I were just looking for our colors on the floor and saying whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Lauren was pissed off at us. What did Charlton Heston do? It made no sense. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but it was it was a very funny sketch, I think. But what a disaster. Wow. I'm gonna have to look that one up, see if it's uh see if it's viewable. Well, you know what they'll do? They'll take they'll pull it out of uh of dress rehearsal. Or something else, you know, when they play, when they rerun, if they ever rerun. But that was a, that was a very good show, actually. We did with him, but so it was it, it was it notably went south. Like it wasn't like oh nobody will notice it. It was like oh we have to use the dress rehearsal because this was a disaster. Yeah, and and here and plus being dressed like that in a disaster dress <laughs> <laughs> with these weird costumes and things on our head. But I thought it was hilarious because we were laughing like trying to find our line on the floor. But I blame Charlton Heston for that. Right. Because he well, had too many cue yeah, cards. He should have worn his glasses or gotten contacts. You can tell when you watch the show, like there are some cast members and guests who are better with the cue card thing than others. Like there are some who will always be looking off in this diagonal, whatever yeah. they're saying. And some who will actually like look at the person they're saying their lines to as if they're actually engaging with another person on stage. Yeah. Christopher Walken read his cue cards and he was brilliant. He turned out to be one of the best shows we ever had. But working with him was strange because he would just walk away in the middle of your sentence. Like you'd say, okay, so this, and he'd just walk away. Or he didn't know who his character was in the sketch I was doing with him. And I had written it with a, another writer and he had to be, Rainbow Head, the guy who showed up at all the games, the the NFL games, and he would hold up a big sign, John 316. Right. A rainbow head wig. And so he goes, Rainbow Head, what? And I go, you know the guy who wears the rainbow head? And he would just walk away. <laughs> I never got to talk to him too much about the sketch, but he was Rainbow Head. So he comes out as the guest and it's live. And he comes up to me. <laughs> And Ben Suffering goes, who am I? <laughs> In the show? Yes. And I said, Rainbow Head, welcome. And then he sat down and then he read the cue cards and it was absolutely brilliant. It was people were laughing so hard because it just worked somehow. That Rainbow Head would look off in the distance and say his say what he had to say and then look back. He was just, he, and the guy, I didn't realize he's a hoofer. He can dance. Hmm. And he did this, this amazing sort of tap dance on the stage for his opener. And we're watching him and he was coming like to an inch of falling off the stage and didn't fall off. He's one of those guys who just, he puts such a 
interesting spin on the ball with like every sentence. And so you're kind of glued to like, how is he going to say that? What, like, what is he emphasizing? Yeah. It's kind of like you're waiting for something to explode, but it doesn't. A friend of mine saw him in a play at the Goodman. She said, I was on my way there and I see Christopher Walken and he's going, this is the old Goodman. And I saw him. And so I, I followed him. I wanted to just see him. And he went to the back door where the actors there would go down this long stairway into the basement part. And it's a long flight down. So she looks there and he fell down the entire flight of stairs. Oh, man. And she goes, I mean, he fell down all the way down the stairs. Then he got up and walked in. (laughs) So she goes, I didn't think I was going to see him on stage, but she did. And he was perfect. favorite stories about him because we never stopped talking about him because he didn't um everybody was saying that he doesn't really he's not really listening to us not really relating to us but he was hilarious who are the other guests who kind of surprised you in a good way dolly parton i loved her we just had so many laughs she's very outspoken she you know, of course, the big the head writers wanted to make fun of country music. She's like, why would I do that? I'd never do anything like that. That's how I make my living. I love country music. You know, like she had them wound around her her little finger. I mean, they right. were all coming to me and going, well, a couple of writers kind of go, I never thought I could ever be in love with someone like Dolly Parton, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> she was great. And I love Mary Tyler Moore and... uh Rick Moranis. Was there anything that sort of the good guests had in common, like in terms of background or approach or anything like that? Or was it really because like, you know, some of them are, you know, like someone like Mary Tyler Moore, you don't don't think of as I mean, you think of her as funny, but not necessarily doing sort of sketch comedy. Whereas Robin Williams, you think of him just sort of going off and improvising off the top of his head. But there's some there's some like sort of straight actors who do really well and some who are just like, oh, this is totally not funny. Yeah, I think certain people would come in and be really, really nervous about it, that they were going to fail. And it is, it's a lot of stress on on them, because if you're not a comedian or you come from a show where you don't improvise and do these kinds of things, I think it's really hard. But Mary Tyler Moore, I loved it because when she came in Monday is when people kind of try to say ideas that they have. It, It was the worst day of the week, sitting with the host and pretending that, oh, we all write and we're big, happy family here. Um, but, uh, she came in and she said, I don't care what I do, but I have to be a Sweeney sister. Ah. Like, Oh yeah. And we did, we did a really, really fun Sweeney sister with her. And she was, uh, she was very willing to talk because so many had so many questions for her. You know, she, she explained her show. She goes, the trick is to work with really talented people. She said, that's what I did. I reacted to all these great talents around me. And her show spun off other shows because the people were so, so great on her show. Right. What was it like being a woman in the writer's room back then? Yeah, I didn't like it. I mean, I really did not like the confinement of Saturday Night Live. I always wrote my own material. I had been on the stage for about three years before I auditioned for that show. I had no trouble writing comedy for myself ever. But when I was on that show, the mantra was, oh, women are so hard to write for. We can't come up with anything for the women. The women have to have something to do this week. That was, you know, that was very stressful. I felt it was very, um, you know, after a while, I didn't even feel like I was funny. 
because the pressure to write something, we weren't paid as writers, of course, the, 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 the cast I work with, but we wrote, you know, Dana wrote, of course, Mike Myers wrote, Phil wrote, we just didn't get paid for it. But um, if we wanted to be in the show, we had to write. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we had really great shows and we had the big heavy duty writers. They wrote the big sketch of the week we used to have like the big politicals what was happening that week and a lot of the show depends on what is happening that week right now they have so much fodder they'd never run out with right. what's going on in politics so and the characters in it we didn't have the crazies you know one one and back in that day now you've got nothing but crazies so they have a huge, uh, they have a big cachet of characters there. But I really felt it was weird that women were always presented as a problem. We couldn't have more than three women on the show, which I had at one time, you know, pitched as an idea. Maybe we need to have more women. Oh, absolutely not. That would make it even worse. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the 80s, you know. Right. Did you find that things that you thought were funny were getting shot down because it's like, oh, it's like women comedy or something like that? Yeah, they called it girl girl humor. And, you know, when Bill Murray did the show, his idea was to come in and gun down the Sweeney sisters. Go, no, you don't gun down the Sweeney sisters. They always end up on top. Right. They're not the Sweeney sisters. We didn't. They loved themselves. They had egos. They thought they were great. Just like his singer, he thought he was a great lounge singer, Bill Murray's, but so right. that did not happen. Did you say to him, well, why don't we gun down your lounge singer? You could be in the <laughs> middle of singing Star Wars and we'll just like, shoot you or <laughs> you with a lightsaber. Yeah, we should have. He wouldn't have liked it. What was he like as a host? Um, you know, he was from the original cast, so I don't think... Uh, I think, you know, he did it. He did the show. I think he, I'm not sure he enjoyed doing the show as, as a host. I don't know. He'd have to speak for himself, but it was kind of like, you know, he came from the iconic cast. These guys, I mean, they were a phenomenon. We never claimed to be a phenomenon. I think a lot of the ideas, some people were like, you know, you guys don't think you're so great. You're not so great. We were so great, but mm. You know, it, they never said that, but people who came from that era, you know, it was understood. I think we were actually a great cast. We were a great ensemble cast. We kind of bought that whole concept back and everybody in our cast was pretty strong. So you're always going to be, be compared to the iconic cast that started it all. So right. when they were there, we were always kind of like, you know, just assistants. We weren't really considered to, you know. I'm not saying everybody was like that, but that was just kind of the feeling of it. Yeah, the show's been going on so long now that there's this understanding that there are these waves of casts and you look back on, well, there were the, you know, the, the Kristen Wiig years and the Will Ferrell yeah. years and the this yeah. and the this and the that. But back then it wasn't such an old show. And so you were probably yeah. more more in the shadow of that OG cast than you know, like 10 years later, they weren't in the shadow of it so much because they were farther out. And I'm like, well, there have been other casts. And we understand now that there's this sort of churn and you're going to have your Eddie Murphy's and John Lovitz's and Nora Dunn's and Phil Hartman's and, and all these people are going to be in these other casts and you're going to remember them too. Yeah. Like back in my day, um, they didn't bring in celebrities to do the impressions. There's so many people right. that 
join these casts, you don't even know who the cast is because they import people. Oh, you know, and they didn't have a black actor to play Barack Obama when he became president. Right. Fred did that. So do you watch the show now? Mm, I don't watch. I don't tune in to watch it. I watch it. I'll, I, I'll stream stuff and watch all the sketches I want to see or, you know, but I don't tune in at 11. It's embarrassing because I've worked with people who were in these casts and I didn't watch. I mean, I, I just didn't watch for years. I, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't really have a reason to, I'd see something if, if, if I heard it was this, and that was great. And then of course, during the, the Kristen Wiig years and, and, and when the, the women started writing, I was tuning in, but for a lot of those casts, I don't know. And then I'll work with these people and then oh, they expect me to recognize them because <laughs> we weren't really on the same show. It's been on so long. Right. So I'll say, who, who, who was that person? Well, she was on Saturday Night Live. Go, oh, damn. I got to get home and look up their sketches now. But it's like being on Saturday Night Live, I was there for five years only. And then it becomes like this lifetime thing. And I've done so many other things that I've really right. enjoyed more. I've done a lot of movies that I've loved. I've just, uh, it's just, I just accept it because I still get that you know, not, not every day, but I would say several times a week, I get somebody even on the street that walks up in my neighborhood. I had a guy come up to me just two days ago, coming out of the coffee shop. He's walking next to me and then he's like looking at me and I'm like, he goes, uh, are you Nora Dunn? I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, wow. Okay. And I'm like, <laughs> I go, I am Nora Dunn. Yeah. I'm the girl with the coffee in her hand, you know, but they remember from that, or sometimes I have people come by screaming out of a car, entourage, entourage, because I was mm, on that series and that right. was kind of thing. But um, I don't know. It's sometimes I'm fine with it. And sometimes I'm like, huh, yes, I was on Saturday Night Live. What can I, I can't, I can't change that. <laughs> well, I mean, do you like getting recognized at this point or is it a nuisance yeah. or is it still like, oh, they still care? Yeah, absolutely. And I go, Nora, please don't be Norma Desmond. Just move on. <laughs> but it is nice. I don't want to see the, I, I wouldn't want to have a day that nobody know like what Saturday Night Live? I never even heard of that. Who were you? You know, you don't want that. So it is recognition has, is nice, you know, but I mean, if it's some people have said, oh, I know the kids in the neighborhood after the 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 uh, Clorox commercials, one of my little neighbors, little boy goes, are you the lady who cleans the toilets? <laughs> <laughs> I go, no, I was on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> there you go. Do you think that the show is fundamentally different from when you were on it? Um, no, it's never changed. The format never changed. It's just different characters in these, you know, in the format that it is. That format works. I think now there's much more behind the scenes and I kind of don't like that. I go, wait a minute, you're showing our hallways. We were the only ones who knew backstage. Right. Actors, you're the ones who know what it's like backstage and nobody else can. They don't get that. But now you see the cameras moving around. You see people rushing around, which, you know, it's it's cool, but we didn't do that. It's like, no, that's, that belongs to us. 
NBC. The Oscars do that. I mean, everyone does that. Like the Oscars, which is like, was like this awe-inspiring awards thing. And they're like, oh, there's Jennifer Lawrence standing backstage before she puts gives out an award. I'm like, why? Adjusting her alone. Let her have an entrance. And also what killed the Oscars is the host trashing the Oscars. Then stop having it. We all know it's silly. We all know awards are awards. But when you watch that, you're going to buy into that. And the person who is getting the Oscar is going to be excited about it. But when you start with the host, that's like, this is meaningless and nothingness and all that. It's like, okay, then let's just go do voiceovers. What let's, why, why are we even doing this? And for the slap thing, was that the Oscars? Yeah. The Oscars. That was the Oscars. Yeah, no. I'm done with that. So I will never watch again. I I couldn't believe that that happened. I know. I couldn't either. And that the audience still gave him a standing ovation. It's like, we really are in the Trump era, folks, because that kind of behavior is not acceptable. You don't slug somebody after you laughed at their joke. He laughed at that joke. Then he saw the look on his wife's face and she had every reason to not like the joke. But her reaction was to not like the joke. And then he got the idea, oh, I'd better go up there and slap him down. It was just a disgrace. I just thought, okay, go back to Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was the perfect host because he could do his, do the thing. He could bring out what it really was and still honor it. And there was some right. decorum there. I remember when David Letterman on his show, he would have... Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler, this wrestler. And there was one, you know, famous episode where Jerry Lawler just slapped, you know, Andy Kaufman in his neck brace, like off of his chair. And it was this stunning, upsetting thing that was a bit, but, you know, I remember, you know, they were gone and David Letterman came out and was like, very like apologetic. Like, you know, we understand that it's upsetting to see something like this. And it was just sort of an acknowledgement that this is a traumatic thing to watch. Like, even though it was a bit, you know, now you just have these, these arguments over like horrible things being acceptable and normalized and all that. And, you know, I mean, like, it's interesting. So there's like, I would say that there's a through line that you, you became like, not just for this, but, but you took a stand when Andrew Dice Clay was going to host Saturday Night Live and you and Sinead O'Connor were like, I don't want to have anything to do with normalizing this sexist pig. And, you know, years later you got, you know, Donald Trump hosting while he's running for president after he came out with his bigoted platform at the bottom of that escalator. Right. I was like, you've come a long way since Buck Henry, the original Saturday night live had revolving hosts that were the same people. Buck Henry hosted a lot. Now it has to be a trick. It has to be something, you know, I'm, you know, it's like, when someone's doing an impression of Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton should not walk out there. You know, one, um, you know, for the Sarah Palin, the brilliant, that, that yeah, um, Tina Fey, Tina Fey's Tina Fey was Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin was not Sarah Palin. Tina Fey was. And when they hit Sarah Palin on, it's like, you're taking that away. Because Sarah Palin's a phony. She's a fraud. Tina Fey was the real Sarah Palin. That's why it was brilliant. That's why she got the Mark Twain Award, because she 
embodied that in such a perfect way. And she didn't do, you know, she was always hilarious. She always had these interesting characters here and there. But that's the first time I ever saw her do something like that, like embody a character and everything that is do a satire about everything that is so wrong with this character with Sarah Palin. Right. And you guys, Sarah Palin was at the reunion. I'm like, I'm not going to go up and talk to her even for fun. And actually no one was talking to her. I was sitting next to um, Bill O'Reilly because I remember Warren with, or, or Lauren Michaels with his seating chart. He never forgave me for not doing the Andrew Dice Clay show. So of course, when we had the, the last reunion, I was. You seated you next to Bill O'Reilly as punishment. Me next to Bill O'Reilly, I see. You know, when when Lauren had his seating chart where he was putting people, taking this one away and put this one back. So I was next to Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> sitting behind Kevin Klein, which I thought this is a fabulous seat because I'm talking to Kevin Klein and I had a good conversation with Bill O'Reilly. He goes, well, I guess you're real glad to be sitting next to me. Are you being punished or something? I said, no, but I was. But I actually had a nice talk with him. And then, you know, Dennis Miller didn't show up. And I said, why isn't Dennis Miller here? He goes, well, he doesn't want to come out and get booed. I go, he wouldn't get booed. He would get a standing ovation. He bought back news update. He was brilliant. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) it just... In the, the, the iconic days of Saturday Night Live, they would never have that have done that. It was a, it was a click. And we were a part of this of like these people. These are the only people allowed in this click. And we're, we're the fans, the people who were watching the show. We would not have accepted that. Richard Nixon was not was not going to come out when Dan Aykroyd was doing his impression. I think that Ford might have done like a taped live from New York at Saturday Night Live when Chevy Chase was brutalizing him with a very like totally not at all trying to be accurate. It was just basically like he's a buffoon who falls down all the time. And Ford sort of played along, but it was kind of like, really, Gerald, you're going to that's kind of uh, you're kind of buying into something that's tearing you apart. Yes. And it went it went so far that it was always funny. He just took it so far. The Sarah Palin thing, I feel like, was the last political thing that they did on SNL that actually had teeth to it. Like, I, I felt like, I mean, you know, Alec Baldwin doing Trump. I mean, I actually think the James Austin Johnson, you know, who's doing it now is better. But they're still like, I always feel like they're, it must be like a network edict or just an entertainment business edict where they're really still afra- afraid of offending people and really afraid of going after they're just like the jokes could be a lot rougher and they're and they're a little rougher on weekend update they're a little more pointed but i i feel like there's still like you have these cold opens and they think it's funny to just sort of do an impression of adam schiff like just make him look stupid or make him look weird or make biden look old and just like you know but those aren't like that's not political satire that's just kind of like goofy impressions it's it's not smart I mean, the thing is, I'm tired of hearing that, oh, both sides have to bring down the rhetoric. No, there's one side in this country that's absolute, crazy, mad, mean, and dangerous. And it's not my side. I mean, there may be, uh, you could probably get, you know, crappy stuff on the uh, on Twitter and stuff. But no, there's one side. And to try to even it out by putting Adam Schiff on as if he's a dope... He's not. That's not satire. Satire is supposed to illuminate the truth and to take that something truthful about somebody and blow it out of, you know, blow it up. Show show that thing made no sense. I mean, to make fun of Biden's age, there's different things you can make fun of about him. But 
age, you know, you could, but it's, it's not like he falls down all the time or, you know, it's, it's, he's old. He's too old to run again for sure. I think, but there's a way to do that. That's uh smarter. It's just not smart. Right. With the Andrew Dice Clay thing, like, how do you think that would have played out if that happened now? Like, there was obviously no social media at the time. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the stuff is happening behind closed doors. But it was known that you were just like, no, I don't want any, yeah. any part of this. You know, and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, well, but then again, later when, you know, other people have hosted, you know, nobody, maybe people didn't stand up. I don't know. Like, did, did people threaten not to perform when Trump was there or when Elon Musk was there? Or? I don't know. I think the network has a lot to do with these decisions. But I... You know, the Trump thing really floored me because and and why have Elon Musk? He's not he's not funny. There's nothing about that guy that's appealing at all. And he's not a genius. He's not. He hired a lot of geniuses. He was very, very smart with his Tesla. But, um, uh, you know, he's not Einstein. It's not like I'm going to go in my room right now and come out and I'm going to go build a spaceship. No. I'm going to go hire people to build a spaceship. So I'm not, and, and the stuff he put, I mean, I'm still on Twitter. I'll be there uh, for a while, you know, to see who, who else drops off, but you know, uh, nothing that he writes is witty or smart. He shows no sign that he's worth reading much less looking at, or, you know, it's, it's a shame that, I don't know these people just because he has money, he's going to control something as big as Twitter. Well, and there's just, there's another follow the money aspect of it too. And that like, where did that 44 billion come from and who else is backing it? And, you know, yeah. and, and what is their, what is their agenda? You know, why, why do you want to own Twitter right now? So well, Trump has to be back on Twitter. His truth social is not working for him. Whatever happened to Nunez? <laughs> He's unemployed. What is he doing? He was in charge of Truth Social. Right. Trump is not getting heard. He has to go back on the road, like his his stand up act. He's back on the road, so he'll be back on Twitter. So people who back Trump and all those people who want him, who knows if the money came from Putin? It's to get him back on Twitter. Right, Andrew Dice Clay. If that happened now and you'd make, made that stand now, that would have been all over Twitter. Would it have played out any differently, you think? Not really. I mean, luckily, I mean, I got a lot of, I got thousands of letters. And I kind of, I did go through, I mean, I heard from, I actually got a letter from Rod McEwen. I mean, there were so many interesting people that wrote to me about that. And they got it. I mean, at the time, of course, I was accused of grandstanding. It's like, no, we didn't find out about Andrew Dice Clay until Monday. And I already did not like him. I knew all about his material. I lived in the West Village. When he played at the Madison Square Garden, his thugs were down in our neighborhood beating up gay people, gay guys, you know, throwing things at, you know, I saw some guys after that concert slap a girl. She was Indian, like from India. And they just came up and slapped her face. They were all coming from Andrew Dice Clay's concert. Mm. And what offended me so much was from being on the show for five years, always being told girl humor, women are hard to write with. Well, you're going to be light in the show. Well, we had, you know, all this stuff. And then 
to have this guy, you couldn't dredge up anybody else for the show that his late, his, his, the CD that was out that, you know, was so horrible that he was, it was live in a, in a standup act. And there was a man and his daughter and his daughter was, uh, he asked the guy, he said, Oh, is that your daughter? And he said, yes. And he said, Oh, are you effing her? And he goes, you know, he can do that to you because he's buying your pizza. That was the joke. Right. And uh, truthfully, Sinead O'Connor was doing the show that week. I had that CD. I sent it to her. I did. I sent it to her hotel. (laughs) I said, please get this to her. And she, she got it and she played it. That was his latest CD. And that was, that was, there was other ones about how you treat, you know, your wife or girlfriend, you put her head in the toilet. Fuck her. (laughs) I can't say, I don't know what we can say on your show, but you know, and then tell her, make me some eggs. And the guys would cheer and laugh. And so would the guys and girls at the concert. Ha, 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 that's so funny. And it's not, you know, I was just so appalled by that. And that the the idea that my show, this is my, this is the cast. We have a strong cast here. This is our playground. We deserve the best people you can find to play on our playground. I'm not going to go play on his playground. So, you know, I, I never, ever regretted doing that. I just felt like... I almost made it off the show. I only had one more show after that, which was Candy Bergen. Mm. Bergen came in. She goes, I'm going to, I want to do a, I'm going to do a satire on Andrew Dice Clay. Really? I hope you have some rape jokes. They don't go over that big. Did you feel inadequately supported by, you know, others? Cause you know, other people must've felt similarly, like this guy is not up to our level and he's, you know, know, piece of crap. Well, I'm not going to write for him. I'm not going to perform with him. I didn't care at all. Because I I was a part of a cast, but I was an individual. I'm a person. And I didn't do that running around to everybody going, oh, don't do the show. Don't do that. I wasn't, I didn't boycott the show. I didn't go to work that week. I don't want to be there. You know, I should have been fired. I would have been happy if I was fired. Because then I wouldn't have to go back for the Candace Bergen show. I didn't want to be on the show. And when I went back, I don't, I don't want to be in any sketches. So I didn't watch that show it made me sad. It, it hurt my feelings that they went after it. So, you know, supported Andrew Dice Clay fully, fully supported him. But that's, that's what they did. My whole background, I grew up in the inner city of Chicago. I went to high school in the 60s. I saw Martin Luther King when I was 14 years old. We went with the whole group. My parents were very much involved in the civil rights movement. And then, you know, Come 70s, feminism hit. And, you know, my age group, we were into all that. We we took that stuff seriously. And I I didn't, you know, my acting teacher actually flew out (laughs) to New York and was with me every moment for that last Candace Bergen show because I studied with her for three years. She came from the Jean Sheldon acting workshop. I studied there. Then I studied with her. So I, I was with this, this actress, this for four years. And she always told us, you need to choose your roles wisely. She had been in a, in a Clint Eastwood movie and she was ashamed that she was in a movie that was so violent. And, and she said, you have to bring your integrity, integrity with you everywhere you go, because this is an art form. And I never forgot that. And, you know, she was very proud 
that I was on Saturday Night Live and I was successful, but she flew out and everybody goes, who's this strange old lady with her? Just flying her everywhere. Cause she was, she was in her seventies at the, by the time I was on the show and she didn't say a thing to anybody. She goes, I'm your angel. Cause you did. Mm. the right thing. I'm proud of you. When you left the show, did you think, you know, you would keep doing comedy or did you, did you like the idea of going more into film and more into serious yeah, I, wanted, I didn't. I, I, ju- I didn't want to be in show business because I had never been in show business before Saturday Night Live. I had never been on television. I had never been in front of a camera. And, you know, I, I finally did tell this little story on Twitter because Randy Quaid was in that original cast, the strange cast that we had the first time. Right. I didn't know what show business was. I know that my my mom was always like, don't be in show business. The people have no, they're there. It's just like morally corrupt and all this. But um, at any rate, we were staying at, we, they put all these people who were auditioning for the show in the Berkshire hotel. And I got dropped off one night, I guess Andy, Randy Quaid was got, got dropped off somewhere. We got on the elevator, just the two of us. And he says, uh, do you want to come to my room and have sex with me? <laughs> had him before, but I go, Oh, Randy Quaid. Well, he always played those kind of characters. I go, I said, uh, no. And I thought, I guess he's kind of joking around and playing the character that he is in movies, kind of dense, lost. And I just got off. But I worked with him. I don't think we ever spoke for that season. I didn't, I just didn't. But I remember thinking, is my mom, my mom must be right. Because that's how show business is. They just, wow. They just come up to a woman and, and say that. And I had a couple experiences with directors too that were, very inappropriate but you know being from where i'm from you're just like no sorry yeah no when you said that about randy quaid i kind of like had like a ah like sort of like a laugh because it was like what but it wasn't like a boy that's really hilarious it was like a what the you know there was a wtf kind of thing like and also i mean i mean he's obviously gone further off the rails since then but um but just the just sort of the expectation that you could say something like that at that point. I mean, I watched, uh, you know, I saw a screening of the movie She Said, which is about to come out, which is about, you know, the the reporting about Harvey Weinstein from Megan yeah. Toohey, uh, who who I worked with at the Tribune and uh, whose father was one of my editors at the Tribune and uh, Jody Cantor, um, who also worked in Chicago for a while at the New York Times. Um, you know, you just sort of see what just the expectation. I mean, part of what's disturbing about the movie, I mean, it is is that there was just this feeling like, well, of course I'm empowered to, to treat you like this. Yeah. And, and that it took so long for there to be kind of a kind of coming together of people saying, what, you have no right to pe- treat people like this, but it was going on recently. Well, they, they, his defense, Harvey Weinstein's attorney, his defense is this was a given sex was an exchange for a job. That's his defense. And everybody, yeah. and everybody knew that. I didn't, I didn't run into that. I had one experience with a director who was very, very prominent, who I had spoken to many times and he was very uh, famous for his great movies and stuff. You know, he had called me on the phone a few times. Then he called me in to speak about a part and uh, I'm sitting in his office alone and he picks up this long kind of snake that was on his desk, like a wooden snake that, uh, and he came up behind me and he jammed it down my blouse and started <laughs> down the front of your blouse. Yeah. And I jumped out of my chair. It was Robert Altman, by the way. And 
I jumped out of my chair and I go, what the F, man? And I just straightened myself out and I just walked out. I didn't know what else to say. Robert Allman stuck a wooden snake down the front of your yeah. bus. Yeah. With no problem. And then he called me and said, oh, by the way, I'm not hiring you for that part. I'm hiring this other actress. What movie he was said, it for? It was for the player. He says she's she's does what you do. She's a very good actress and she's very funny, but she's 10 years younger. I'm hiring her. He said that to you. Yeah, that's what he said. Then I speak to other people and I go, Robert Altman, who I'd had many conversations with before, love his films, you know, and they go, oh, he's a lech. He's just an old, you know, yeah, that's him. That doesn't surprise me. His assistant told me that all these people, then I put that on Facebook and I get all these people. Oh, yeah. He's always been like that. And he's know. making a satire of, of Hollywood and he's acting like and he's acting like, you know, that. yeah. You know, and then I realize a lot of his movies put women in compromising positions because he's a director. Oh, I want to see you. Could you mind taking your pants off? You know, I think your character would do that. I mean. It was such a dominated. I mean, there's more women in the field now. And, and uh, I work with a lot of of female directors. I love it. I love going to some of these. Uh, you know, I, I've had I've had a nice and, and just just a whole different experience now with so many women on the sets. And, you know, it's it's really getting a lot better. But, you know, though that was kind of a given that you weren't going to be respected and you have to go along with this. And you didn't go along with it. So he, he just my reaction. Then let her go. Nori, you should have said something else. I go, well, maybe I should have said, oh, please, Mr. Altman, don't do that. No, I, I just, <laughs> please yeah. don't put a wooden snake down my blouse. <laughs> Why didn't you say that? That would have been the logical thing to say. It's a I normal thing for someone to do. Just tell them don't do it. You know, the thing that kind of gets me is that I've had a couple other experiences that I don't tell because I go, I don't want to hear about it. I just move on because I spoke directly to uh, on it. And, uh, you know, some of these, uh, it's just like, you feel that fear. Like, I don't want any retribution. I don't want anything on Twitter. I don't want, I don't want people to say you're a liar. It's like, I don't really care at this point. I feel like I don't have to care so much about retribution. I remember seeing Three Kings at the Toronto Film Festival back when I was covering that. And I remember you coming on screen and you were really good in it. And I was like, oh, Nora Dunn is like totally like kicking ass in this movie, you know? And I thought that was a really, like that movie was in my top 10 of that year back when I would do that sort of thing, yeah. you know? And then later you're reading about George Clooney and David O. Russell were like having a beat down and, and all of this, all of this stuff. Like, what was that set like at the time? Like, was that, was it like that? It was like that, but I, I felt like as far as my character was David, um, at the time was a friend of mine. After I auditioned, we got to know each other. I got to know his wife very well. And I was married at the time and we went to see them a lot and hung out with them a lot. Um, so I kind of felt like, well, he's, he was hard on me, but in a good way, because 
he wanted more from me for that role. And he fought for me to be in that role because there were people who were much bigger actresses than me that wanted that part. So I didn't feel that way. George, you know, he's a really equitable person. He wants people, if he's in a movie, he doesn't want extras to be mistreated. He's not the guy that has an assistant bringing him meals and doting on him. He doesn't care about what size his trailer is. He is just not that guy. And, uh, you know, I think that that was a really hard movie. I think that the extras in the movie, some of them, a lot of them were from Iraq and they had escaped through Syria. They were very interesting. One of the most famous directors or actors in Iraq was in that movie. And they told us their stories about what it was like to live under Saddam Hussein, you know, now leaving a country, never being able to go back and going into Syria where it was horrible. They were, many of them were killed in Syria then. And uh, I would see these guys sitting out in the sun in these garbs, you know, I went over to them once. I go, well, you guys, you, you don't need to sit out here. They didn't have anywhere else to go. And so I think that that uh, Clooney really, he didn't like, he didn't like, it wasn't the treatment against him that was bothering him. It was the treatment against other people in the film. Right. <laughs> no, they did have, they had a physical fight. Everybody knows that. I was sitting on a rock right next to him. I'm sitting there looking. I go, what the hell? Wait a minute. Clooney, you know, because David Russell headbutted him and that started it. And Clooney just pummeled him down. was just pummeling <laughs> him. <laughs> And then they got, you know, and then when Clooney talked about it later to the press, he goes, well, you know, all actors butt heads with their directors. <laughs> but Clooney was right. You know, he it wasn't about he, how he was being treated. But the movie, I loved the movie. I thought it was a great movie. Did you not keep in touch with David O. Russell later? I did for a time. And then I found his behavior getting worse and worse, you know, in life. It just... You know, I, I heard that his the film he just made is nonsensical. Right. As you know, I'm, I haven't seen it, but I've heard that, too. Every set, you're going to hear stories about like Amy Adams came out to say he was very abusive. American Hustle. Uh, on American Hustle. Yeah. So it's kind of a thing where I felt he was harsh with me, but not overly harsh. You know, it was a big movie. It's tough to direct those. I can say he is an artist, but, you know. I don't think uh, it's not someone that I want to know at this part, at this stage. Do you think that, I mean, again, I haven't seen Amsterdam. There's some people who like it. A lot of people say, ah, it's kind of a mess. Um, but do you think at this point that when, you know, a filmmaker puts out something and has that kind of track record, that it's the right thing to say, well, before you see this movie, read all these articles about all his misbehavior. Not necessarily. Because, you know, some people will say, I don't look at, you know, Picasso. He was so mean to women. Okay. He was, I guess. But the women he was married to, if he was that way with them, just don't be with them. I'm not going to, you know, I don't judge him as a person. I'm not going to stop looking at his paintings. You know, I'm not, I, I feel like that's, I still like Michael Jackson's music, you know, but I, I'm not going to say I'm never going to listen to some of the music he wrote. Right. That, a part of him that was brilliant, but there was another part of him that was, you know, horrible. So I, I, I don't say I wouldn't like, what are we going to do? Look back on all the movies and stop watching movies. 
because the director was an ass, you know. I mean, I I did see American Hustle. I liked it very much, actually. But I, I didn't see any of his other stuff. I was supposed to be an I Heart Huckabee. He told me I was going to be a tennis player. He said, Lily Tomlin, you're going to be playing opposite her. So take some lessons. So I did. I started taking tennis lessons and stuff. And then he called and said, well, he can't, he's going to, that's not going to work out because, you know, he can only, he can't get put that whole angle. It's going to make the movie too long. And it was legitimate. So that was fine. So the character didn't exist. No. And I was happy that I was not on that set because I love the footage of Lily Tomlin. Oh my God. Oh, it's brilliant. Just brilliant. And you got to learn tennis at least (laughs) play better. I took some classes. Yeah. Um, are you doing writing these days? I'd seen this one, you know, person show you did years ago, Mythical Proportions, which was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you're sort of doing more of that kind of writing I, now. It's starting to come back into my head now because I, I'm just kind of drawing away from going to certain places to work. I'm going to go to LA to work, but that's it. I'm not going to any more. I'm not a great flyer. I don't like flying and I don't like flying into Atlanta and all that. I just don't want to do it. So I've started really kind of forming another show in my head and, but I'm working in clay now. That was my next question. I know. Yeah, no, a queen's Christmas, a tribute in paper, clay, diamonds, and rubies. I was, I was leading up to that because it's your most recent thing. Yeah. But that's taking up a lot of my time, but it's characters again, because every, these figures that I'm making are characters, but you know, I started out, I went to the art Institute and I, uh, I was lost there. I went That's to- where you were in school. It's, you didn't just go to the Art Institute like yeah. I just went to the I went art to the Institute. school of the Art Institute. But I was like, well, I'm not really a painter. I was really a writer. But I, yeah, so I, 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 I got away from art. My dad worked for a paper company, which is how he came up with the idea for his, his hardcover books. <laughs> but he, um, we, we never had, we didn't have coloring books, just a blank piece of paper. My mom was really into that. Here's a blank piece of paper. Do something with it. Hmm. So we all drew. Everybody in my family draws. My sisters and I made paper dolls. We made, uh, you know, doll houses out of shoe boxes. And the, so I, I this is kind of an extension of that, you know, that I enjoy. But now I'm starting to, I'm doing comedy. I do it at the, at the uh, Lincoln Lodge. I go up and I do kind of stand up with them. It's, hmm. it's, a nice, it's, it's, a, it's really a nice uh it's a really good venue because I have to come see that. Yeah, it's good. It's an audience of kind of all ages. It's a really good, smart audience. And, you know, I think, Oh God, what do I have to say? But I, I love getting up. I only do what 15 minutes, you know, but it's fun because, but then it's kind of like, I'm starting to formulate that. I like the stage so much. I don't know if I could do a play. I was going to be in that play at Steppenwolf. And then we shut down. It's a brilliant play. Um, and it did go up. And I heard it was great. I, I was not here when it was uh, running, but I just would worry about remembering my lines now. In that play, I had so many monologues and lines. And and even, you know, when I'm doing, you know, TV action, I'll just stand there like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay because we can do it again. But I worry about having that moment on stage and it's just too scary. But when you write your own stuff and you're free to you know, the character, you know, then I, I would be much more comfortable with it. Were you just not able to do the Steppenwolf play because of scheduling stuff at that point? Yeah. What was the play again? It was the, Oh God, it's a long title. It's the trial of uh, Martha Washington, Ms. Martha, the spectacular lamentable trial 
of Ms. Martha because it's about Mar Martha Washington and she's on the plantation with the enslaved, you know, and her husband has died and they're supposed to be freed when she dies. So the enslaved people are trying to can get her to die or change her mind and set them free. So they show up as all these different characters. And in real life, you know, they, they did try to burn the house down. Mm. They tried to get rid of her. Um, and it, and it, ultimately Washington's slaves uh, were not free. They were never free because Martha, a woman could not own property. Those people were considered to be property. So the ones who were came from her side of the family went back to other plantations. So basically the families were separated that were, you know, toiling on his in his labor camp, you know, Washington's labor camp. And then, you know, some of them were set free, but it wasn't it wasn't a happy story because everything was so mixed up by then that it, it turned out to be families were separated and, and uh, you know, Washington had many, many opportunities to get rid of his, you know, to set them free. John Adams did not own slaves. He didn't own people. Right. Were you Martha Washington in that? Yeah. It's such a, when I read this script, I was laughing out loud. It's a brilliant satire. James I. James. And he's going to be a big voice in the theater. But COVID cut all that down because we were opening, we were going to be previewing in like two or three weeks when we had to stop. We had already rehearsed and rehearsed. So and, you put a lot of work into this. Yeah. And, but now it's just different with me because I don't think I have the stamina to do that many shows a week. You know, when I go out to LA and I work on this uh, home economics, which is really a lovely show, I love it. But like I say, I have to get up at four in the morning, usually. And I could not do show after show after show like that is to work the 10 hour day. Phil Greer and I were, were married couple. We're the parents in that show. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, we have to take a nap at lunchtime. You know, we, we have to have a little time off. We can't be, we, we were switched to these smaller trailers for this last show we did. And we were compared. No, our couches are not big enough. We need to sleep on our couch. That's what we do. We need to rest. <laughs> are you still doing Chicago med also? I did that for a season. I don't would not go back either because I were I not that they've asked me, but I did I think I think I did eight shows and it was winter. Oh God, once again, getting up so early, driving down there in the snow. And that's a that show is like you get there, you go, you get in, you work. You work all day. And it doesn't uh there's not it's not like in a lot of things you do have some downtime. There's no downtime there. Television in general is more fast paced than if you're on a movie yes. set. Movies languish, which I like. I want that to be my new career languishing. By the way, did your brother Kevin follow you into show business or was he sort of on his own track already? Theater in college and actually in high school. And then he was a theater major. And I believe he had a, 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 a he was on the football team scholarship. So he played football and did theater. And then afterwards he did theater, but he was or had already been in the series in Chicago that one of the first series ever to shoot here, I think it was called Mike or remember that? Vaguely. He was in that series 
and he started doing other things, parts, and he was, you know, he was a dramatic actor. He still, he, he, he's hilariously funny and does great comedy, obviously. He did Veep for all those seasons, but, and he's always been funny, but he's, he's a great dramatic actor. So no, he was in, he was actually in show business before I was. Yeah. Veep will be his SNL. Yeah. Oh my God. Remember the, when they had to do the, the, uh, what do they call those where they have to, t- the, the investigation, everybody had to testify. Right. And each monologue. I know when Kevin had that line where he goes, if I had children and I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Would the, would the two of you like compare notes on your experiences? Oh yeah. A lot because there's so much, you know, uh, my brother is also not Mr. Showbiz. You know, uh, neither one of us ever kind of got this thing where get to know the executives, you know, you can, but they're not really going to be your kind of person. You know, I never hobnobbed with that, the other element or knew how to do that. It just wasn't me. So, uh, you know, we always have talk about how kind of ludicrous it is and who gets the awards and who doesn't ever get nominated. And, you know, in my career, I've just worked with great people. I've had that opportunity to work with great people. And I guess, I don't know. I, I always saw myself, I love character actors since I was a kid. It was like Thelma Ritter. It was Angela Lansbury. It was the, it was those people that I always loved seeing. There's not a lot of character roles these days that, you know, like there used to be. But that's how I consider myself. I kind of, I'm I'm like a character actor. Well, well, those are like the great roles that, I don't know, to me, that this would grounds a show, a series, a movie in reality. And like one of the things that you and your your brother Kevin do is when you're on screen, we believe you immediately. You know, like I believe that when, you know, when Kevin comes up on Veep, I'm like, he's that guy. guy. And, And when you come up in something, you're that person. And, and. And again, I don't know if that's partly, again, coming from the Chicago thing or just kind of the just general no BS way you guys approach your work. But there's a believable thing as opposed to it being like, okay, here's like that, you know, hat you're putting on or something. Yeah, I love that. I like believability. And I and I love it when I see that in other people that do that, 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 that play these characters like um, Gary Oldman, one of my favorite actors. Mm-hmm. He plays just such different characters and he just embodies them totally different you know there's not that much of that now because you know because i i mean there's great actors that i like that are always kind of themselves but they have a believable self and so you you totally buy it but they can't go further than that which is fine but i do like the characters yeah i agree and uh, and you guys haven't been swallowed up by the Marvel universe yet, so that's that's something too. I don't I don't p- picture you being blue or, or or something else. No, I would not. I, I couldn't sit for that. <laughs> I did something. What did I do? I can't even remember now. Oh, it was a video game thing, and I had to be this very strange, crazy space woman, and I was like in makeup for six hours. I can't, you know, I don't even like to get my hair done because as soon as I sit in the salon, I'm like, I want to get out of that chair as soon as I can. So 
I don't want to be offered the elephant man. Not going to happen. Well, thank you so much. This has been great to talk to you. I'm looking forward to a Queen's Christmas, uh, your tribute in paper play. Thank you. Appreciate you doing this. That's all for episode 62 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Nora Dunn for telling such eye-opening stories about Saturday Night Live and well beyond. Follow her on Twitter at Nora Dunn, at N-O-R-A-D-U-N-N, and keep looking and listening for her excellent work. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, another hardworking Chicagoan who takes no BS. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food. And also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.